Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates, Send in the Clowns, The Phoenix Tube Company, CelebrityTrips.com, The Law Firm of Decalator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and Relish Restaurant of Kings Park. Here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. This is Chris Chelios, two-time Stanley Cup winner. Hey, it's Mark and AJ on WLIE 540 AM. Thanks for listening. And welcome back to WLIE 540 AM Sports Talk New York. Perfect ID right there because he's all over in this book. So it's perfect timing with the Chris Chelios ID. Joining us now is a man who had a 12-year NHL career for the Detroit Red Wings, Los Angeles Kings, Dallas Stars, and New York Rangers. He gained recognition for his agitating style and controversial behavior both on and off the ice. He was known for his electric interests, having worked in fashion, most notably as an intern at Vogue magazine, as a model, and as a restaurateur. He finished his career with a total of 90 goals, 247 points, 1,533 penalty minutes, and 580 games. I was lucky enough to cover his six seasons as a Ranger, and if you thought he was entertaining then, you haven't seen anything yet. His new book, Ice Capades, is a no-holds-barred memoir of high living, bad behavior in the NHL, coupled with behind-the-scenes glitter of celebrity and media nightlife in New York and L.A. It is a thrill to welcome number 16 in your program, still number one in the hearts of Ranger fans, Sean Avery to WLIA Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Sean. Wow. Hey, man. How are you? Good. Good to... Good to talk to you again, man. It's been too long. Um, you know, thanks for joining us. And I have to tell you that doing this show over 10 years, AJ and I have literally read thousands and thousands of books. Ball four, for me, is still the gold standard in which sports books are measured. And I have to say, honestly, this is basically the hockey equivalent to ball four. How did the idea for this book come about, and, and what was the genesis of the project? Uh, well, it's funny you should say that because, I mean, the template for this book was ball four from the moment that um, uh, Nick Garrison, who's the Canadian publisher at Penguin, handed me ball four and said, you should read this book. <clears throat> the moment I read it, the moment I was done reading it, the, the seas kind of parted for me, and I knew exactly the type of book that I needed to write, and I was lucky enough to have this, this template that Bouton put together basically 40 years ago. Um, so that's that's the process. You know, it's interesting about Ball Four and this because for me, the major difference between the two books. All right, at the end, Jim Bouton stated that you spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and at the end, it turns out it was the other way around all the time. But you have so many other interests, and that's what makes the book so interesting for me. It's not just hockey. And it, it really is almost a perfectly crafted book from the dedication to its final lines. It's perfect. The dedication, which is bizarre, quotes Curtis Armstrong's character, Miles Darby, from Risky Business. And the, the dedication basically says every now and I'll clean it up for radio, obviously. Every now and then you say, what the F? What the F gives you freedom? Freedom brings you opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. What the F? If you can't say it, you can't do it. How much does Sean Avery live his life to that mantra? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I put it as the first <laughs> paragraph in my book. So <laughs> I, I think uh, it's one of the greatest lines ever said in, in a movie, in one of my favorite movies of all time. And it's just the reality of how I, I've lived my life to this, 
state and how I played the game. Um, you know, it's interesting with, with what you said about Bowden earlier because Bowden went on to have an unbelievable career outside of the game. Right. He invented Big League Two. He had um, TV shows on network television. He wrote another book. So it's interesting that he that he thought he was this prisoner to the game, or or or, and and when I think about it, it's the complete opposite. And maybe it's because I had the reflection of reading a book like Ball Four that gave me the ability to understand the process a little bit more, because nobody nobody had talked about this when Bowden wrote wrote Ball Four in, in '70. I am in a different era. I am in a different time in the world. So it's, it, it's a great point by you, and it's an interesting reflection moment that I, I actually haven't even thought of. You know, this, this is AJ, Sean. The big difference, I think one of the big differences between Ball Four and Ice Capades is Ball Four is about a single season. This really is about uh, your entire right. career. So how yeah. hard was it to go back and think over an entire career to remember all, to get all the, the salient points, the key events and things like that, and how did you go about doing that? Well, when we handed in the manuscript, the first manuscript had sorry, 1,300 pages. We ended up with, I don't know, a page count of 340. I used the schedule as a way that I could look, and I would look and say, all right, we played Chicago. This is my third NHL game ever. I would obviously go to the penalty box score, not the box score. The goal <laughs> yeah. See if there was and a fight. Say, that night. Oh, that was a night Bob Prover tried to kill me, and Scotty Bowman saved my life. So that would that would start to, to trigger memory points, and that's what I did basically the whole entire process, which was I used the schedule, and and as I was, you know, as I was in day fifty or sixty of writing. My mind was in a different place, and it started to open up, and I started to remember things that I hadn't thought of, you know, in some cases, 10 years. You know, it's so cool because it's really, it's a journey, and it's a real eye-opener for both people in the media, guys like me, who form their opinions on players, basically, after a game, the 10 or 15 minutes we get with them, or fans who read or hear those stories. Uh, the story paints a very different picture of who Sean Avery is, and perception is not necessarily reality, at least when it comes to you being off the ice. How did you cope with having to be the on-ice persona that Sean Avery actually created, and the Sean Avery that your parents, Al and Marlene, raised you to treat others like you wanted to be treated? Well, it's, it's the best of both worlds because essentially you're given this jersey. And now I've been acting the last year and a half, which has so many similarities. But you're given a jersey, and automatically you're, you're allowed to do things that you're not allowed to do in your regular life. So if you have any fantasies of, of being able to walk down the street and tell somebody to stick it or to be able to tell your boss to stick it or just the general public to stick it, sports is, a, is an unbelievable opportunity because it's an outlet that you're allowed to do. I talk about it in the book. When I was bad, when I did things on the edge, I was promoted. I wasn't demoted. So I never looked at it as a burden. I looked at it as this outlet that... I'm just thankful I had because, you know, it would have been dangerous to have the Sean Avery mind and energy running around without that outlet. 
We're talking to Sean Avery here on WLIE 540 AM Sports Talk New York about his great new book, Ice Capades. You talk about wanting to be a hockey player since age five and everything it took to get there. You played 580 games in the NHL. Although you talk about your love of New York a lot, one thing that comes across so clearly that your 75 games with the Red Wings, some under Scotty Bowman, teammates Chris Chelios, Brendan Shanahan, Steve Eisenman, Brett Hull, Chris Draper, really gave you a great foundation. How important were those guys to teaching you what was expected of an NHL player? Well, it's, I mean, it's like going to Hockey 101 and, and squeezing it into uh, one season. 11 Hall of Famers, some of the greatest players, Ever the game in NHL in one single season over the last hundred years, um, it was it was it was so important to to you know I don't think I would have been an NHL player without that season. You know that that's interesting because I I thought about that because you mentioned in the book later on about when you played the Blackhawks how you want to kind of stick it even though they were one of the teams the only other team that had interest in you as a uh, undrafted free agent. I looked at that roster. I guess the only guy of note at that point on the Blackhawks would have been Tony Amante. Brian Sutter was the 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 uh, coach of that team. Do you think your career would have been different? Had you signed with the Blackhawks? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't even. Well, first of all, I don't even think I would have made. I, I, I'm not sure I would have had a career. Really? You no. Know? Yeah, because what what that season with Detroit actually did from a skill level, I immediately was on the ice with some of the most elite players in the world. Passing and skating in a Detroit practice was better than than some NHL games. Sergey Fedorov, Brett Hall, Igor Larionov. Um, I, I mean, I could keep going, but what what the practices did for my skill set and my skill level, it put me. It was like I was. I had already played five years in the NHL, coming into my second season because of the elite level of skill displayed in a Detroit Red Wing practice, doing three on twos with those guys. Tremendous yeah. talent, and you win the cup in your first I mean, year. Yeah, the quick question about that is in terms of winning the cup in your first year, right. was that in the long run a good thing or a bad thing? It'd give you a distorted view of you know, what it was like, hey, we won the cup in the first year, or how did that affect the rest of your career? No, I, I mean, you know, I, I don't think it affected me. I don't think that um, I had this thought in the back of my head like it was an evil. Uh, uh, a voice on my shoulder saying, "Well, you don't have to block that shot in the in the playoffs right now because you've already, you know, you've already been there and seen it." Well, I didn't play in the playoffs. I was a spectator. You, you know, I don't think it. I don't think it was a, a detrimental. Um, it was just an unbelievable experience that um, you know, 25 people were privy to in the whole entire world. And you talk about the parade as well as being a fan at your own Stanley Cup parade, which is pretty interesting, too. <laughs> you're, you're traded from the Wings to the Kings, and you're told by your AHL coach at the time, Danton Cole, and you say that even if you know it's coming, and, it's, and in this instance you did not, you've been traded are scary words for any player at any level to hear because it means your life can either get much better or much worse. That being said, after Cole tells you you've been traded, I'm just wondering you know, a lot of times in life when people tell us certain things, it almost seems like time stands still to the next sentence. 
putting in the perspective when you say that uh, the scariest words in your life is going to get either better or worse, how long did it seem to the next sentence to where you were going? I, I think it was a, a matter of seconds. And then it was, you know, essentially that was the birth of me, <laughs> the, the character. The moment that I heard Los Angeles, it was kind of, it was on. It was on at that point. You know, and some of the great stuff comes from your time in L.A. And just like Jim Bouton shares some stories, you, you learned some lessons along the way during your career, one which takes on a greater meaning now that the NHL's newest franchise is in Vegas. Can you yeah, share with our yeah. listeners the lesson you learned during a trip to Vegas for an exhibition game with the Kings and what not to do with your credit card in Vegas? Yeah, well, first of all, I want everybody to look at the uh, Las Vegas team's home schedule 20 games into the season. And I want you to see how lopsided it is because NHL teams going to Vegas for the first time, sometimes it's the first time some of these kids have ever seen a slot machine. So to say the home team is going to have an advantage is an understatement. I had the um, learning experience at a, at, a, at a gentleman's club called Crazy Horse, Horse which you never leave, leave your credit card down to pay the tab. No matter how much of a big shot you want to look. <laughs> uh, an awesome story. I, I was cracking up on that one. Um, yeah. You embrace the LA, L.A. scene, obviously, and you say it's really the birth of Sean Avery. And before long, you're dating Rachel Hunter. You're meeting her ex-husband, Rod Stewart, even envisioning a life with her. And, you know, who knows? Maybe if the lockout never occurred, maybe you would have. Now, even though you put in the book that you're probably the most famous third-line hockey player ever, does that seem a little bit surreal to you at that moment? I mean, the whole story about when you went to Rod Stewart's house, what's going through it, your head? Yeah, the, the reality is is I still think it's all a dream. I'm a, I'm a small-town guy from Canada. What's going through my head is, like, I was thinking, man, my, I wish my dad would love to be here right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, I remember listening to, to Faces records when I was like 12, 13 years old. So it was always just, I had always had this moment of reflection and sort of laughed to myself. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah. While in L.A., you also meet Alicia Cuthbert of 24 fame. One of the things that stood out for me um, is that you say part of the reason why Alicia and I were coming together, aside from the strong physical attraction, was that we came from the same place. It's funny. I used to avoid Canadian women, and now here I am in L.A., all excited with my girlfriend. She knows about the tragically hip and coffee crisp. It's like having a secret language. Did having that connection while you're out in L.A. sort of ground you a bit not to get all caught up in the hype of L.A.? Definitely. I mean, I, I think, uh, like I said, I always, was, I, always, I always realized that I was in these situations that I, and I probably shouldn't be. Like, I always thought, what are you doing here, you know? <laughs> and, and I think... My time with Alicia was, was, was special because of that, because we were both young kids still learning in a, in a city that obviously is getting a lot of attention nowadays that can get pretty dark, and, and it's, a, it's a city that can swallow you up, much like, like New York. 
Interesting. Now, L.A. has its ups and downs for you. In your fourth season with the Kings, which is the 2006-2007 season, you're now playing for your third coach, Mark Crawford. And at the All-Star break, you take a trip to New York to visit Alicia, who was shooting a film called Sassy Girl. And the seeds are already being planted for you to become a Ranger. And it all started at a dinner at Dos Caminos in the West Village. So can you share a little bit of the behind-the-scenes stuff and how Brendan Shanahan played a key role in becoming a New York Ranger? And I have to, to tell you this, uh, you know... Uh, I've shared this on the air a couple of times. I'm almost embarrassed now to say this. I have two golden doodles, all right? One of which is named Yager Shanahan, and the second one is named Madison Avery. Wait, wait, wait. This is the first time I heard you give them middle names. They have middle names. They are registered with those names. But they are. You can look it up. I BS you Yager. How many years? You've never told me your dogs had middle names. They do have middle names, but well, I, so I had to get that out does there. Does he go to the penalty box, or is he? Got I, I, I also do have to tell you this, Sean. The best part about Yager is Yager is now 13 years old and still uncontrollable. Right? So, no, um, and you know when you cover the Rangers, you very rarely, lately, go into the winning locker room because the Rangers uh-huh. have been winning a lot. So over the course of the last six years. I really have not had the opportunity to speak to Yaramir until because a couple of the playoff games, that's not the appropriate time. So the last time he was in, I mentioned to him, and he goes, you got him and you named him when you know we were here? I was here? I said, yeah. He goes, is the dog still alive? I said, yeah, you're still playing hockey and the dog is still alive. Amazing on both ends. Oh, that's funny. Well, I'll one-up you. I have a short hair, a long-haired chihuahua named Winnie, and I named her after Winnie Cooper from the uh, oh, wow. Wonder Years. Wonder Years, a tremendous mathematician as well. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so take uh, us through how, how Brendan played a, a yeah. part in bringing you to the Rangers. Uh, listen, it's, it's funny because Shani's obviously proving to be a great builder, and at that point he knew that Detroit, uh, the, the New York Rangers could use Sean Avery, and he had the foresight to, to when I was in the city for a few days, he set up a dinner so that I could meet some of my soon-to-be teammates. And he did that <laughs> so that he could go to Glenn and say, yeah, the guys have already met Sean. They liked him. Seems like it'll be a good fit. So it's funny when you think back and look back on and, 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 and actually look at present day to a guy like Shannon, how well he's doing and, and how he was essentially doing it back then also. Unbelievable. And if there was ever a player meant to wear a Ranger jersey, it was you. There's instant chemistry between you and the fans. You mentioned how you like listening to music and headphones in dark rooms with candles burning. And while I'm not sure that this song would actually make your playlist, after reading this book and the differences between you in L.A. and in New York, to me, if this book ever gets made into a movie, and if you do cut this scene, I want royalties on it, okay? <laughs> I see you blasting, you know, Neil Diamond's I Am. You know, L.A.'s fine, the sunshine's most of the time, and the filling is laid uh-huh. back. Palm trees grow and rents are low, but you know I keep thinking about making my way back. Well, I'm New York City born and raised, but nowadays I'm lost between two shores. L.A. fine, but it ain't home. New York's home. Wow. What is it? about New York that is just so Sean Avery? I mean, I think it just comes down to the people. You know, any city that um, people can greet themselves, greet each other in the morning by, by flipping each other the bird. <laughs> you know, Surfing that's town, yeah. for me, man. <laughs> I don't need to go too much further. Husbands and well, wives you know, as well. <laughs> I mean, one of the things I'm doing in the book is you really didn't like the L.A. culture and the people in L.A. 
So I guess because New York people are so different and more like you, I yeah. guess, well, you like it. Yeah, I mean, the L.A. scene, even from a sports standpoint, it's a Laker town. Obviously, now the Kings have had some, some, some great years. But back then, it, it was a Laker town through and through. So the moment I got to New York and saw that energy, that, that was the other thing. It was, it was over. You know, you talked about your love of fashion, your internship at Vogue, and it's so interesting because in Dallas, you were actually sent home to change before a plane flight because of what you were wearing. Fast forward to today, and style is so much a part of sports now. Henrik here in New York, Dwayne Wade did an internship with GQ, Cam Newton, his suits are always a big focus. Do you ever wonder what Sean Avery's career would be like if it started 10 years later than it actually did? <laughs> um... Yeah, you know, I never really thought about that. I never really thought about that, but I, I certainly think, wow, it's a good question. Who knows, you know? I think uh, I definitely would have found a way to get into some trouble <laughs> still, regardless of whether I fit in better now than I did back then. Uh, you know, another thing that surprised me in the book is how you paint Jim Dolan. And it basically comes because of his support uh, when you did the Marriage Equality PSA. How did your involvement in that PSA come about, and what was reaction around the league, and what was your interaction with Jim about that PSA? Um, so I lived in two very um, – I lived in West Hollywood, and then I, when I moved to New York, I lived in Chelsea, two extremely gay parts of, of two big cities. When a friend asked me to, to be a part of that PSA, I just said yes. And I think the great thing about uh, about Dolan is that he just, you know, it's either a yes or a no with him. And he's not even the one that's saying it. And so the, the beautiful thing is is that um, I, I just had a feeling that it was going to be okay. And, you know, he's a loyal guy. That's what people in New York sometimes are, are most angry about with him. It all worked out for the best, and I say it in the book, he is the best owner in sports, hands down. Yeah, which is interesting because here he's constantly vilified in New York. The, well, that's the, because of the Knicks, not because right, of the Not Rangers. because of the Rangers, that is true. The book also gives backstories to some of the great MSG chants. Um, one of them you wish you could take back, and that's obviously the sloppy seconds comment. The other chant, which is Uncle Daddy, and it's your ongoing feud with Martin Brodeur. I'm wondering how much of the fact that Brodeur was one of the players the NHL touted as one of its stars, and you're one of these guys that is always looked at as a bad influence by the NHL, but yet you never really had any major issues, and Brodeur's personal life obviously has a lot to be desired. That rivalry culminated, obviously, in the Avery rule. The non-handshake, and then on top of that, the fatso comment with John Giannone. So I guess it's a twofold question. Was Brodeur the biggest target during your playing days? And I know it happened so quickly, but while you're in the moment and you're looking him right in the eyes and you're screening him, facing him, and the goal gets scored and the garden goes crazy, what, what's going through you know, Brodeur's face? What are you seeing? Well, it was like a cartoon. His his uh, his his the whites in his eyes turned into like a cartoon where it was boiling water, and it just got redder and redder and redder until it got to the top of his eyeballs, <laughs> and then it was like his head just kind of blew off, and steam started spurting out the top of his head. 
um, that's the, the, the that's the first part of it. And I will say about the Brodeur situation, like the city fueled the fans fueled my hatred for him, and it never really stopped. It just kept going, and it, I think it was as authentic as it could ever have been with any other feud that I ever had. Another the guy, another guy who kind of gets lit up in the book is your former coach here the second time around. That's John Tortorella. It's interesting to note that you like Tom Rennie, your coach here, your first stint. What was it about Torts that rubbed you the wrong way? Well, he was just a control freak. You know, I played for Scotty Bowman. He let the room police themselves. That's what co- good coaches do. Um, and I think that you know. Uh, he, he 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 had like this small man syndrome where he tried to dominate every situation. It was it was just too overbearing for for me and for a lot of guys. That's for sure. It's interesting. I'll I'll never forget the look on Brian Boyle's face after breakup day, after coming out of you know the the postseason you know talk with the coach and just how devastated Boyle looked. And that is an image that I know it whatever. Torts told him in that room was not cool, and, and I'll yeah. never forget that face. And subsequently, Boyle, you know, did not resign with the Rangers. But I, you know, that's something I will take with me for a long time. Uh, we had John Branch, the author of *Boy on Ice: Life and Death of Derek Bugard*, on, and we also had Ryan Callahan on the week after Derek passed away. You talk a lot about Derek in, in the last season chapter and how his case, in some respects, was so terribly mishandled by the NHL, and maybe if he, he had been around the team, his death may have never happened. Can you share a bit about that story as well as the fact that had you not made a, a call to Chris Drury, you know, Derek's funeral would have looked a lot different than it ended up looking? I mean, I, I think one thing about pro sports is that your safe zone as, a, as an athlete is the dressing room. And the thing that I the, – um, the Tortorella situation with Bugard – he took Derek out of that safe zone, and I think it was one of the most dangerous things that happened to to Derek along his path to eventually an overdose and his passing. Um, the whole thing with the funeral, you know, there's a there's a there's a relationship between the two because we didn't know Derek because he was essentially banished from our team. So, you know, I don't blame guys um, for maybe not feeling as close to Derek as, as they probably should or what normally happens. And that was just a situation where I was lucky or I was nosy enough to find out, you know, who was going to be on the plane, when everybody was going, what the schedule was. I realized there wasn't enough, <laughs> certainly that there were names missing on that. And, you know, to sum it all up, our coach didn't attend his funeral. He said he had a bad hip. The doctor said he couldn't fly. I know if I'm coaching a team, those 25 guys are, are as important to me as my children. I'll do whatever it takes to get to a player's funeral, especially one that I'm in, that, that, that I'm responsible for. So that was a tough moment in my career for sure. You know, additionally, I know that in the books that I've written, my publisher, you know, did not give us creative license for the cover whatsoever. We had no input at all. Your cover is very interesting. It's a stark black and white shot of you with your shirt off, yet the thing I immediately go to are the scars on your face. So first off, did you have final say on the cover, and 
it's also interesting because nowhere in the book are those scars discussed. And I'm wondering if... Actually, it discusses the one scar. The one. The one. The one. But I'm wondering if the other one has like a, a, a Guy Bouchard, you know, kind of uh, mystery behind it, and you're not going to reveal that. Uh, no, they were just both slap shots to the face. <laughs> I wish I could... I wish I could give them a, a, a fancier version, but just a good old slap shot to the face, um, which I think a lot of hockey players know what that feels like. Um, the cover actually was uh, a picture that I had done by a friend of mine, David Lippman, who I talk about oh, the book. Yeah. I, I didn't want a um, stock hockey photo. You know, I wouldn't have wrote a book if that was going to be the cover. So I think we just did a great job with it, and I think it's a it's a great expression of me and sort of sums up my career, so to say. And if I could in one picture, I think we did a good job. Yeah, excellent. Now, also, you mentioned the differences between people from Canada and, and the States. If I'm not mistaken, the book has a different title in Canada? Sorry, say that again? Uh, you know, does the book have a different title in Canada? Oh, yeah, it did. Well, what's yeah, the title so there? Uh, so, the publisher in the U.S. wanted a more um, a broader title, so we went with uh, Ice Capades in the U.S. and Offside in Canada, because every Canadian knows what Offside means. Oh, ouch. Ouch. <laughs> wow. That's harsh. <laughs> uh, you know, I mentioned at the top of the interview how the book opens and closes perfectly. You close it with a quote, and, and people will be shocked at this one if they have not read it yet, that Sean Avery closes his book with a quote from William Shakespeare from As You Like It. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. So what's the next part that Sean Avery plays? Um, well, hopefully it's in some capacity, something similar to, uh, um, words written by a Shakespeare or David Mamet, or, um, I'm actually doing a Peter Berg movie, uh, um, shortly. It's coming up soon, uh, Mile 22. Pete, Pete put me in a movie, I would say, a year and a half ago, and when I was on the train ride home, I realized that's the closest feeling that I've ever had to my Madison Square Garden. You're on set, there's 300 people standing around, all of a sudden they hit, say, action, and all the energy and focus goes into you and, and the people that you're in the scene with. And it's a pretty special feeling, and for the last year and a half, I've spent pretty much all my time either on the book or uh, at a studio training to, uh, to be a working actor. So the, the, I'm either going to be a, an out-of-work broke actor, or I'm going to be a working actor at some point soon. It's so interesting you mention that. I'm in a movie theater. He, he, Peter Berg's, the, the film that Sean just alluded to, was Patriot's Day, and there's a scene where there's this Watertown cop like on the side of a building, and I turn to my wife, I go, who is that guy? I know that guy. And it was bothering <laughs> me the whole film. Because it was just so out of sorts, and, and then, you know, obviously it was you, but it, and that's not the first time I've seen you on the big screen either, because you also played, before you were a ranger, you played a ranger in a movie in The Rocket, which was yeah. also pretty cool. So, you know, you talk about that desire to act and that it gives you that rush, but what skills can you take from the fashion world and hockey that are translatable to acting? I think being vulnerable, you know. I think that's the number one ingredient to being a, a good actor, is being able to be vulnerable. And with fashion, you take risks. And certainly with, with sports, every time you go out there, 
you're you're vulnerable. It's a it's a it's a daily life being vulnerable. Um, so I think there's a lot of similarities, and and uh, it, it it's it, it's it's amazing. It's so much fun. Sean, uh, you know, we literally could do a full show with you each and every week. We'd even touch on this year's New York Rangers, your good friend Hendrik Lundqvist. But I know your time's limited, so we really appreciate you coming on with us tonight. Where's the best place for people to get ice capades, which, by the way, is number one across the boards on Amazon as far as hockey and sports and outdoor sports go? Where's the best place for them to get the book? I mean, I like the, the small independent bookstores. I did a signing today at Bookends in uh, Ridgemont, New Jersey which is a cool little independent store. Um, obviously the big ones like Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, but go to your local bookstore, and if they don't have it, bug them. Bug them to place an order, because i got to get on that New York Times bestsellers list. Absolutely. You, know, you should come out this way. The book review does a lot of book signings as well, um, and I'm, I'm sure they would love to have you. So uh, it's, it's been a while since I spoke to you. It was always great speaking to you post-game in that locker room. And um, thank God you guys addressed, because now I cannot look at Henrik Lundqvist the same way anymore <laughs> because of you. <laughs> Thanks, I really Sean. appreciate you guys having me. Thanks. Our pleasure. Thank Sean Avery, right. former New York Ranger, author of Ice Capades.